Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We've got a uh, great one today, you know, for a change. As you know, I try to keep these, these shows evergreen. To do that, I don't do the news of the day. So today, uh, I'm going to talk about what led to where we are today, what led to uh, the awful divisions in Washington, why Washington doesn't work, and it led to Trump and to the impeachment. I'm having Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute talk about the erosion of norms in Washington, in Congress, over the last uh, 50 years in, in, in all our, our politics. But I do want to say something about the impeachment. I think this will be true forever. It's my observation about how ridiculous the Republicans are being about all of this. I've heard a number of them say that phone call, that was about corruption. It was about... Trump was really interested in getting to the root of corruption in uh, Ukraine. And that's why Burisma wasn't about getting dirt on the Bidens. It was, uh, it was about his lifelong uh, interest, his lifelong dedication to anti-corruption. Holy mackerel. This guy, for example, I have a doctorate in uh, anti-corruption from the Trump University. The Trump uh, Foundation had a big part of it was was dedicated to (laughs) anti-corruption, giving to this guy is the he's corrupt every day of his life. New York Times did a huge article on how his father passed money down to his kids, including Donald, completely corruptly. How Donald, uh, we know that he rips off, you know, people supply pianos to his hotels. I mean, he's he is nothing if not a corrupt man. That's who he is. So for the Republicans to go like, oh, you know, no, 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 no. When he talked to Zelensky about Burisma, it was and, and about the uh, prosecutor, it was it was because he was so uh, focused on corruption. 
in Ukraine, which has always been an interest of his. Uh, corruption in the former Soviet republics. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, Republicans will say something that is so ridiculous that it bears uh, a comment. So uh, enjoy this one. As I said, a great one. A great one uh, with Norm Ornstein. Norm Ornstein is uh, with us today. A uh, you know we really got a brilliant uh, guest for once, and uh, Norm uh, has been a fixture of Washington at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, that's sometimes considered a conservative think tank, but they uh, they keep uh, Norm there, I guess, so they can say, "See, uh, we got a sensible person here." Now. As I've said many times, I don't do the news of the day. If you want to get that, you can read any paper. You can listen to MSNBC or watch it or CNN or whatever you watch, uh, Fox. Not if you want news. Okay, okay. So people who are easily triggered uh, by mention of, of, of Trump or Newt Gingrich or Mitch McConnell, don't bother to listen to this. Because we're we're going to be talking about how we got here, uh, how we got to this uh, impeachment, and how we got to this kind of impeachment trial where, God, it just feels like uh, Republicans are putting their fingers in their ears and going, I'm not hearing anything. There's no case here. <laughs> I was in the Senate for eight and a half years, and that's exactly how most... Uh, Republican senators sound yeah. when they're not, you know, copying a Southern accent. They all sound like Jerry Lewis. Oh, Lindsay. Okay. So what Norm and I are are going to do here is discuss when did we start losing the norms? When did they start disappearing, I guess? And first, Norm, why don't you explain what a norm is? So a norm is like the do's or don'ts, the shoulds or shouldn'ts of social behavior, any kind of social behavior. You have laws. We have rules for the government. and Don't invade someone's space. Yes, that's like when now you're talking a norm. But I'm, you know, like when you're talking to them, don't get within two inches. And Right. Uh, and don't sneeze on somebody. Uh, yeah, that's a norm. That's a norm. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, don't talk too loud when you're in a public place. Uh, when your dog craps on the sidewalk, pick up the poop. Right. Uh, now, in some places, they've got ordinances against that, but in others, it's just a norm. It's just a it's, norm. It's civil behavior. Right. But it's also what you do within the boundaries of a society and of institutions, how you behave. And the, the fundamental here is that no matter what your laws no matter what your rules, you can violate them by violating the norms that are built around them. And that's particularly true in government and fundamentally what's happened in a whole host of areas in our discourse and in the behavior of our politicians, our legislators, a lot of our media figures too, is that the norms that existed for a long period of time that are kind of the glue that keeps the foundation together uh, have been violated regularly and disappeared. 
And I just would note one uh, of the phrases that I use probably daily now from an old friend and mentor, the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote a a seminal article called Defining Deviancy Down. Mm -hmm. And the idea is once you start to shatter norms of behavior, then before long, the new way in which you operate becomes the norms, the new normal. Mm-hmm. And you can keep moving down further and further and further. And that can apply to the language that is used, to the way you operate in the context of any institution. I think, in a way, this started with the Civil Rights Bill, which was a, one of the great accomplishments <laughs> of, of, uh, of our time, or of that time. What happened was, is that it, at least between World War II and then, we had bipartisanship because we had Southern Democrats. And they were Democrats because the Republicans had sort of conducted the Civil War. So they were Democrats. So we had these conservative Democrats down South, and you had these liberal Republicans, your Jacob Javits, et cetera in the Northeast, and so to get anything done, you had to act in a bipartisan way. So, you know, we can look at norms through a variety of lenses. Uh, When you mentioned the Civil Rights Bill, it it triggered for me uh, a really interesting review in the New York Times book review last Sunday by Jonathan Rausch of a book by Christopher Caldwell, who for a long time was with the Weekly Standard. Oh, yes. Sort of, uh, you know, but seen as a really bright, conservative light. And he's written a new book. I can't remember the name of it. But the fundamental core of it is that the civil rights and voting rights bills destroyed our way of life (laughs) and sent us down the path of destruction to where we are now. And in a way, what it was is... Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think he's saying something different than I'm saying. No, he's saying the exact opposite of what you're saying, except there's an interesting twist on it. Uh (laughs) Because what he was saying is what that did was to alter not just the power structure in America, but the norms. And the norms back then were you can have destructive norms and you can have constructive norms. Back then were you know your place, you keep your place, and yes, you can serve whoever you want, and that means you can deny service to whoever you want. And when those norms went away and we got norms of now, equality now, now he... and rights, I mean, it's, it's, you, I read this review and I thought, this guy's nuts and used to be in a different category, but it's a reflection now of a frame that we have that you see with Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and you see it with Trump's appeal and with others. They want to restore destructive norms, the norms that basically had people of a different race, people of a different religion, because after all, those norms also included a very sharp dose of anti-Semitism. And it should be noted that the civil rights bills, the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which was the first one, modest one, and then uh, the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65, 
would never have happened without Republican support. Of course, because the Democrats were The uh, Democrats were dominated by those Southerners, and it was... uh, The leadership was, because they were there for life. Yeah, and they figured out how to maintain their power by taking the power positions. That was the deal they cut, in many cases, even to get progressive legislation like the New Deal and the early parts of the Great Society. But then after the Civil Rights Act of 64, those Southern Democrats became Republicans. And the liberal Republicans uh, from the Northeast and some from the West became Democrats. And that started this complete end of bipartisanship led by these really nasty right-wing Republicans from the South, which brings us to... Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. who I think is one of the key figures, if not the key figure, in the disintegration of norms in Washington. When the history, if the history, is ultimately written of this era in a fair fashion, assuming we still have the ability to do it without pure propaganda, there is no doubt in my mind that Newt Gingrich will be right at the top in terms of those who started us down a path of really bad behavior and of the challenges and even the destruction of the fundamentals of our political system and decency. You uh, mentioned language. Yes. And so uh, Newt uh, (laughs) put out this document, uh, Learn to Talk Like Newt. It was a memo called Language, a Key Mechanism of Control. This is his under contrasting words. Often we search hard for words to define our opponents. Sometimes we are hesitant to use contrast. Remember that creating a difference helps you. These are powerful words that can create a clear and easily understood contrast. Apply these to the opponent, their record, proposals, and their party. Decay. Failure. Collapse, destroy, sick, pathetic, lie, uh, traitors. It it goes on and on, but you get the idea there. And we know that Newt did classes for uh, potential candidates to teach them how to use this kind of language and deliberately tried to basically blow up the way in which we had operated with good faith in a political system. He did a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I think he, as you said, is is a huge figure in, in changing Washington, changing politics, uh, basically because he was just vicious. Uh, we're going to take a, a, a short break. Uh, we'll be right back with uh, Norm Ornstein. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Uh, welcome back. We're talking to Norm Ornstein on Norms. So um, <laughs> I uh, went to the American Enterprise Institute part-time while I was still teaching uh, at Catholic University here in Washington in 1978. And the first thing I wanted to do was to bring in members of the class of 1978, elected in November 1978, get a cross-section of the freshmen, and convince them to come every six to eight weeks for a small, private, off-the-record dinner so we could just track their first two years in Congress through their own eyes. And we wanted to pick people who were interesting and in some ways broadly representative, but who we thought would stick around for a while and would be significant figures. And it turned out, even though it was a midterm election, uh, it was quite a remarkable class. So we had eight people, and they included Dick Cheney, newly elected after having served as Jerry Ford's chief of staff, Geraldine Ferraro, uh, and Newt Gingrich. What was interesting is here was a guy who had been a history professor at a small Georgia college who had run for Congress twice and lost before he finally won. And he dominated these conversations. And it was because he came in, basically said, look, here's why I'm here. The Democrats have had a majority in the House for 24 consecutive years, and there's no sign that they're going to lose that majority because they are so good at running as individuals, no matter what the election is and what the dynamic is, they can almost all... Uh, convince their voters that they're a part of the solution and everybody else is a part of the problem. And as incumbents, they have advantages. And as the majority incumbents, they pull in money because they run the committees and subcommittees. And I'm going to change that. And here's how I'm going to change that. And he knew this from the first day he entered. And it was basically he was going to blow up the system as we knew it. He was going to destroy the house to save it. And it would take him a while to do it, but it was fundamentally, I'm going to tribalize our politics and then I'm going to nationalize them. I'm going to divide Americans and I'm going to get them so disgusted with Washington and Congress that at the right moment, they'll say, throw the ins out and bring the outs in and then we win. And 16 years, systematically, he did it. And along the way, basically destroyed all of the norms of governance that were not simply ones that had enabled Democrats to maintain power and have Republicans in many cases work with them. Because going back to what you were saying before, if you looked at the major committees, the Democratic chairs in most instances were probably closer in viewpoint to their Republican counterparts, the ranking members, than they were to the junior liberal Democrats. And so they could work their deals out together. Uh, but the Republicans were still junior partners. But it was all about trying to 
maintain some institutional integrity, to provide some opportunities for minority members to participate in the process, to act with good faith, to keep your word, to be uh, aggressive in debate, but keep it within certain boundaries, to follow the rules and the regular order, including how long votes would take, including um, what kinds of amendments there would be, uh, including the kind of stuff that you saw in grade school about how a bill becomes a law, moving from a subcommittee to a committee uh, and then uh, getting a rule established to allow amendments, then passing Actually, a bill in one body. Right, you know, passing budgets in each committee. Passing budgets, passing bills, having the Senate do a similar thing and then meeting together to reconcile differences, having a relatively open process with members participating and uh, but just as much as anything, respecting the institution as an independent branch and whether the uh, president was from your party or the other party, making sure you did oversight, uh, making sure that you shared a common set of facts as you debated what to do on policy. Which is uh, now, I mean, Moynihan also said you're entitled to your own, own opinion. opinion, you're not entitled to your yeah. own facts. Yeah, which has now gone way by the boards. So Newt set out systematically to blow all of that up. The first thing he wanted to do was radicalize his own party members, including some who had worked quite effectively with Democrats, and then to cause the Democrats in the majority to overreact as he prodded them and to use his ability to take the rules and distort them in ways that would outrage not just the Democrats but others and, of course, what happened is, fundamentally, doing that over 16 years, he finally got to the point. Bill Clinton becomes president in 1992, 14 years into Gingrich's reign. Gingrich, at that point, had completely undermined his own leader, Bob Michael, and moved into the leadership and pushed Michael aside. And uh, when Clinton became president, it was, now we've got our opening. And what we do is... We blow up another norm, a major one going right back to the founding of the republic, which is we don't have a parliamentary system. We have a separation of powers. Parliamentary system, they elect a government. One party's in charge. Our system, you could have one party in charge of the House and another the Senate and maybe the president with one of those two. And if you don't find ways to work together across party lines, then nothing happens. And another one of those norms was that when you finally get bills passed, even if it's fundamentally one party doing them, they're the law of the land and you do what you can to make sure they work so that Americans get the benefits that are supposed to accrue from them. Newt turned his party into a parliamentary minority. They voted against everything. They voted in unison against everything. They discredited what was done. They used the language that Gingrich had laid out for them. And then when the midterms came, because it looked like the president had not been able to do anything. Well, he had raised taxes. And it looked like a shit show there. And there was a huge backlash and the Republicans won the majority and he became the speaker. But as he became the speaker, Newt, in his own mind, thought, okay, when I become the speaker now, I'm going to change the House back and it's going to be the most powerful branch and I'll be a co-president, in effect. 
But his progeny, all those people he trained along the way to have contempt for government, contempt for anything that uh, government did, hatred of Washington, don't bring your families to Washington because Washington is like a leper colony and you don't want to infect people. You come and you do your business to try and clean it out and then you leave. Uh, But they didn't follow his guidelines and before long he was out as leader. But what he had generated amplified and continued and got much worse and helped more than anything else to lead us to the horrible place we are today. I mean, he did some things like specific things that I think were very unhelpful uh, on science, for example. So when Newt became speaker, he didn't just stop. One of the first things he did was to eliminate the Office of Technology Assessment. That was an arm of Congress that contained scientists and other professionals to give Congress accurate technical and scientific information to make its decisions. A lot of those decisions, however, enraged Republicans, especially during the Reagan era. You know, as an example, uh, we had this big fight over the MX missile, this gigantic missile that Reagan wanted to combat the Soviets. And they made all kinds of claims about what the missile could do, what it would cost. And the Office of Technology Assessment came up with data that challenged a lot of the assumptions there. Then we had environmental issues. And we had information about the health costs, about the what toxic chemicals would do, about what acid rain was doing. And a lot of those who funded Republicans and other Republicans didn't like those. So what do you do? You don't combat it with your own ideas or accept the facts and then try and tailor your policies to make them work. Instead, it was, we're going to eliminate the experts here And then we're going to do an attack on their facts and an attack on expertise generally. The norms that we used to have were we're going to rely on facts. We will take experts and where experts may differ, we will systematically look at the data. We will do peer-reviewed studies. We will look at what the mountain of evidence suggests. Uh Do you think that was a good idea? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) there's a war on science. War on science. And and, uh, the climate, you know, like having to eliminate the language of climate change from like any executive branch on anything is hilarious in a way. It's sad, sad, sad. So I'll give you one interesting example from all of this, uh, too. One of the people who came in in 1994 with the Gingrich class was a congressman from South Carolina named Bob Inglis. Oh. Okay? Yeah. Very conservative guy. Um, And for six years, he was stereotypical Gingrich clone. But he came in with a six-year term limit, he said. And he was arrogant and dismissive of his opposition and uh, behaved badly, basically. But six years in, he said, look, I made a pledge and, I, and I'm leaving. And he left and the seat got turned over to his prodigy, a man named Jim DeMint. Mm. Okay? But in six years, the next six years, 
Bob Inglis looked in the mirror, looked at his colleagues and said, this was terrible. How could I have behaved that way? This was wrong. I'm still a strong conservative, but the society can't operate in this fashion. And my expertise in the area I want to pursue is the environment and energy. And I know what science tells us. I know there's climate change. I know there's man-made climate change. What we should be debating is how we deal with it. My approach is to use the market as much as we can. And I'm happy to have a debate with Democrats who might want to just use the regulatory arena or whether we should have a cap and trade and how it should work and all of that. And six years later, DeMint runs for and succeeds at getting the seat in the Senate from South Carolina. And Bob Inglis takes his seat back. Mm -hmm. And for six years is a completely different member of Congress, and gets shunned by his own party, treated as an apostate, and then six years later, after he's been in for another six, he gets bumped off in a primary uh, by a dement protege, uh, overwhelmingly because he believes in climate change, and therefore he's evil. And uh, this is the reality of where we are. He violated their norms by returning to the set of norms that has enabled us over a long period of time to actually focus on problems in the society and work through with debate, deliberation, compromise to find a balanced uh, solution. And that now is viewed as apostasy uh, by a political party that, starting with Gingrich, became more of a cult than a than a party. Okay, so let's uh, move through the years. Yeah. Uh, you wrote The Broken Branch with Tom Mann. In 2006. Okay, now that's uh, looking at kind of delay and Abramoff and... Yeah, that's Congress, and it was a lament about the decline of what we call the regular order, what I was talking about earlier that you would debate legislation in committees, uh, starting in the subcommittees, that you would work out some of the differences. It used to be the case, for example, that on the Appropriations Committee that would allocate money, the subcommittees would have staffs and the Appropriations Committees would have a staff where there was a, a Democratic staff and a Republican staff, but they worked together to come up with numbers that everybody could agree on. Could agree on. And then in the subcommittees, they'd have give and take, and they'd get a bipartisan agreement, and they'd bring it up to the full committee, and they might make some adjustments. And then the committee would take it to the floor, and they'd all say, this is what we've all worked out, and people would go along. What Gingrich did was to weaponize the minority and eventually what became his majority on the Appropriations Committee, insisting that the staffs had to be kept separate, uh, basically getting the members of these appropriation subcommittees, even as they worked with the Democrats to get the numbers, then when the bills came to the floor, they'd vote against their own bills. And to demonstrate that it was these evil people who were destroying America. And all of that... So I can just say, I can say, what a dick. Uh, that's a good uh, word to use, yes. Okay, that's, we that's, could think that's... of some others, but for uh, even for... Well, given the norms of language now, that's a mild term that we could use. Yes. 
he left at a because he had ethics yeah. uh, problems, right? Yes. And uh, well, not you know, uh, of course, going back to the norms, what Gingrich did as well was to weaponize the ethics process, which admittedly had not worked perfectly. Often they had uh, you know the two parties together because Congress has to police itself would ignore ethical violations. But there was a at least a good faith effort to make sure that if people went way outside the bounds of what was ethical, they would be punished in some fashion. Gingrich and and have some due process. And have a due process. Gingrich weaponized this by criminalizing policy differences, and he started and built his reputation in Congress with Republicans by going after and then taking down Jim Wright, the speaker, who had succeeded Tip O'Neill. And who had done some things that were uh, shortcuts, ethically highly questionable, but of what would normally be punished by an admonition on the floor or or even a censure, basically forced uh, uh, right out of office. That came back to haunt Gingrich when he became speaker. And ultimately, one of the things that brought him down was he went after Clinton uh, over his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And uh, it turned out, of course, that at the same time, while he was married to his second wife, he was having an affair with a staffer in Congress who became his third wife. And that... Uh, Seemed a little hypocritical. Uh, it did have a, a tinge of hypocrisy attached to it. He, uh, his whole... <laughs> Remember the thing with... Uh... His first wife? Yes. Uh, he, uh, his first wife, who was uh, older than him, had been a teacher of his. Yeah, he married a teacher. Married a teacher, and then uh, she got cancer, and uh, he uh, decided he wanted to divorce her. I'm pretty sure he was having a relationship with uh, others, uh, perhaps uh, the woman who became his second wife. Uh, but he went into the hospital room while she was there with cancer with a yellow pad with his conditions for divorce, which was, you could say, insensitive. You know, I, I, I think maybe he, he got you know, a bad deal on how that was portrayed uh, by the liberal media. Maybe it kind of went like this. Um, you know, she calls Newt just before she goes into surgery and says, Newt, I'm uh, more certain than ever that I want a divorce. And he says, but honey, you're about to undergo cancer surgery. You, you, you don't know what you're saying. And, and then she, she said, Newt, please, when you bring the girls today, I want you to bring a legal pad with the terms for a divorce. And he says, for God's sakes, you're having cancer surgery. And she said, would you stop it? This is what I want. What I don't want is for you to blame yourself. You're too good a person for that. That's amazing. So maybe it went like that. Maybe. So, I mean, you got to be fair. Um, I think we're bending over triply backwards to be uh, fair to Newt. Um, and, of course, I mean, Newt did a whole lot of other things. <laughs> he just was that, a terrible yeah. and is uh, kind of a terrible Well, guy. and he's and, now— and, and he also was— so cocky and and called himself a, I'm a transformational figure. Well, of course, in many ways, his ego brought him down as well. 
uh, one of the things that led to his departure as leader, as we remember, was he decided in his role of uh, fundamentally unseating Clinton as a uh, as the president, making himself the alternative president, to shut down the government, which lasted over uh, a Christmas and New Year holiday for a long period of time. And uh, that was basically he threw a fit after he came back. From and Israel. after that, and the and there was an enormous public backlash. And then uh, he was on Air Force One going to the Rabin funeral. Mm-hmm. And on the trip back, he was not in the front cabin with the president, but in the back cabin with most of the other leaders. And he threw a fit and said, "That's why I'm shutting down the government." And uh, the uh, New York Post had this remarkable picture on its cover of a baby uh, in a diaper, the crybaby Newt. And they lost big in the next election in 1998. And his uh, colleagues dumped him. We're going to take a uh, quick break now, but we'll be right back with more Norm on Norms. (sighs) Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, we've been having a great discussion for a change with Norm Ornstein on uh, norms and the, the violation of them. Enough about Newt because yes. uh, McConnell. <laughs> I, let's yes. skip delay and all yeah. that, the broken branch. McConnell, I think, to me, the quintessential McConnell thing was invoking what he called the Biden rule to not give Merrick Garland even a, a hearing. Uh, that was um, an in-your-face, uh, I don't care what any of the norms are by McConnell. You know, I, I, I often, Bob Dole's cleverest line was when there was a, a meeting with the former presidents and the president, and it was Ford, Carter, and Nixon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dole referred to them, Ford, Carter, and Nixon, as hear no evil, see no evil, and evil. And <laughs> Dole, uh, if Dole, we think of... hilarious guy. Dole, Dole had a great uh, and often dry really and, dry yeah, and sometimes and cutting. cutting sense of humor. Um, but if I think about a picture of uh, Gingrich, McConnell, and Trump, I couldn't use that same characterization. It would be evil, evil, <laughs> and evil. <laughs> 
Well, McConnell, first of all, let's just start. Uh, Obama gets elected. He meets with his caucus and says, we're just going to oppose him on everything. And we want him to be a one-term president, and that's our goal. So we actually know that Gingrich was a part of that as well. We know that on Inauguration Eve, January 20th, 2009, Barack Obama's won handily election to the presidency. The Democrats have a majority in the House and a healthy majority in the Senate. And a group of Republican leaders, including Gingrich and Kevin McCarthy and Eric Cantor and Mitch McConnell, meet for dinner at the caucus room, a steakhouse just a few blocks from the White House, while all the inaugural parties are going on and Democrats are dancing. And we know that they go into this dinner depressed, demoralized, disillusioned. They've just been wiped out. And they came out with a spring in their step because, in effect, what they decided to do was to repeat Newt Gingrich's playbook. And that was, we're going to be a parliamentary minority and we will unite in opposition to everything that Obama wants, even if it would be good for the country. And at this point, the the economy is cratering. We are losing 800,000 jobs a month. We're in the midst of the Great Recession, which is threatening to become a new Great Depression. And even then, he kept resisting and resisting a stimulus package until finally three Republicans uh, the two from Maine and a specter yes. uh, decided they needed three so that... They cut a deal, and that deal actually was a pretty destructive deal um, that included, for example, a large amount of money to fix the alternative minimum tax, which did nothing to stimulate. Mm-hmm. It included Susan Collins insisting that no money be used for school construction because she said wrongly that the federal government didn't do school construction. But they did get that through. But I, I, let me take it back on the stimulus, because it's McConnell who we'll get to in a big way, but it's also in the House. So Dave Obie was then the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Democrat Wisconsin. from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And he calls in his counterpart, the Republican, Jerry Lewis from California, a different Jerry Lewis. Oh, Lindsay. And Dave Obie says, Jerry... The economy is flat on its back. We could end up in a horrible place, in a much worse place. We've got to do something to stimulate it. I've been tasked with pulling together a stimulus package. We want to work with you and your party. And what I want you to do is go back to your leaders and to your rank and file members and ask them what things they would like to see in a stimulus package and what things are simply non-starters and bring it back to me, and we'll work something out. And Lewis laughed and pointed his finger towards the ceiling and said, I'm sorry, Dave, I have orders from on high. We are not going to cooperate. Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, and Paul Ryan all agreed to this. And uh, a couple of weeks into the session, I'm at a reception, and I'm introduced to a a freshman Republican from Louisiana the first Vietnamese-American in Congress, 
who had gotten elected in a very Democratic district. It was the district that had been occupied by Bill Jefferson, who denied that he had been bribed and they found $90,000 in a freezer, right? So finally, after- You want to keep the bills fresh. Yeah, well, yes. Cold cash, we call it. And after years of you know ethical uh, issues involving him, voters finally voted him out. So here is this Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic district, one that had been ravaged by Katrina, besides the economic issues. And his only hope of winning a second term was to represent his district and bring down some money so that they could get out from under the damage of Katrina and get their economy moving again, right? I watched him on the House floor from the gallery when they voted on the stimulus package. And to make sure that it would be unanimous Republican opposition so they could undermine it and run against it, I saw this poor man sandwiched between Eric Cantor and uh, Kevin McCarthy and squeezing him to make sure that he would not yield and instead would fall on the grenade, give up his own career to maintain that unanimity. That's how far they would go so they could undermine Obama and the needs of the country. So now turn to the Senate where we know that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, the first thing he says in an interview is my number one goal. This at a time when the economy was We're losing 800,000 yeah. jobs uh, a month. And the entire global economy is in the balance. And he says, my number one goal is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And I thought when I first heard that, I must have misheard it or he must have misspoken because, of course, what he wanted to say was, my number one goal is to get our economy moving again, to bring back jobs, to deal with our health care crisis. And to accomplish that goal, it would be great if we could make Barack Obama a one-term president. But he cut right to the chase. It was all about undermining Obama. And then he starts filibustering everything. So here's where the norms come in in a big way, okay? The filibuster rule had been changed in 1975, ostensibly to uh, make it a little bit easier for both parties to operate. And instead of having a two-thirds requirement to... They went to 60. To stop debate, they went to 60. Now, what they also did, though, was... The standard in the rule, Rule 22, had been two-thirds of those present and voting, and they went to three-fifths of the Senate, period, regardless of how many were voting. So 60. So it went from what could easily have been a much smaller number, if people weren't there, to 60. Now, that altered the dynamic, because a majority that was being thwarted by a filibuster before this could at least say we're going to go round the clock, we're going to operate 24 hours a day, and you're going to have to show up. You can sleep on cots, you're going to have to be there, because if you decide you're all going to go away, let's say that we have 51 of our members there, and you've got three, then we only need two-thirds of the ones who are there, and we prevail, and we can stop debate. Once it's three-fifths of the Senate, you got to provide 60 bodies. Yeah, they just didn't have to show up. I, I remember being there for, I was there for a couple of weeks, and I remember 
on a Thursday afternoon after we've done our last vote and we're getting on uh, the subway and I say to Jim Bunning from uh, Kentucky, Republican, and I say to him, I'll have a good weekend. I'll see you on Monday. He said, oh, I'm not going to be here Monday. Yeah. It's a, it's a filibuster vote. I don't have to be here. And that's when I realized how, what a dumb, <laughs> what a dumb thing this was. And so they didn't. They they just would take the day off and maybe do a fundraiser. Yeah. What I wanted was you need 40 votes to keep the filibuster going, and we could take the day off and do a fundraiser. You know, that's the burden was on the majority instead of right. on the minority. Now, after 1975, even though that was the case, the norms were such that filibusters were rare. They were done only for issues of large national significance, not always partisan ones. Sometimes they were more ideological in nature, and uh, they didn't last for very long, uh, but they were pretty rare occurrences. McConnell saw that by just lifting your little finger and saying, we are going to filibuster, by saying, you know from the Senate that... Everything is done in an informal way. It's unanimous consent. And if you deny unanimous consent, you got to, the majority that wants to move something has to jump through all kinds of hoops. What McConnell did was to say, you know what? I'm going to take this and distort it for our own purposes and began to raise the filibuster bar for almost every significant bill, but also for all judges. And this is a norm. This is a big violation of the norm. Right. You can operate within the rules, but blow up the place by violating the norms. And that's what he did with the filibuster. So, good example, we had several nominees for judgeships under Obama that were uh, ultimately accepted on unanimous or near-unanimous votes, 100 to nothing, 98 to 2, and the like. McConnell insisted on filibustering every one of them. And as you know, when you say, we're going to filibuster, we will deny unanimous consent to bring this up, you can file a cloture petition to stop the debate and move to a vote, but you've got to wait for a couple of days for that to ripen, as it were, to bring it to the Mm -hmm. floor. And then you can have a significant period of time and work before you can get the 60 votes, especially if the majority doesn't he, he have— He was slowing things down as much as he could. We called it a weapon of mass obstruction. And then after the filibuster, there's allowed 30 hours of post-cloture debate, and he insisted on taking all of that time, even though they wouldn't debate it, so that you could soak up the time on the floor— and keep important things from getting there and basically degrade the record of the Obama administration and the Democrats. And then, of course, it was also whatever they did manage to get through, work overtime to discredit it, to try and undermine it, to keep the laws from being implemented, which is also a violation of the oath, but it's another norm. The norms have always been it's the law of the land. Let's make it work as best we can. We can fight another day of whether it ought to be changed, amended, or eliminated. He blew all of that up. And that continues to this day, but it continued throughout the Obama administration. And then we had the violation that you talked about that is the biggest, most significant, and the worst, uh, which is blocking Merrick Garland. 
he cited this thing he called the Biden rule. And Biden said in a speech, the Supreme Court term is over. It's late June. Yeah. And they said if if now one of these justices, conservative justices, resigns so that the president can nominate someone super, you know, really, really, really conservative, that's not right because we have an election coming up. That's in June. That's after the session. But he says in that speech, if you consult with us or nominate a moderate, you have my support. Yeah. So he keeps citing the first thing and not the second. Now, cut to a number of months ago, and he's asked if a vacancy occurs in the Supreme Court next year, what would you do? And he says, I'd fill it. And he laughs. Yeah. And And so this is basically saying there are no rules. It's whatever I can get away with, right? What happens with norms when you start to break them, what can bring people back? There has to be a sense of shame and a pressure great enough that somebody is forced to change behavior to reinstate a norm. If you don't have that sense of shame, if you can't blame the people responsible for bad actions, they have no reason to change. Shame on you, Mitch McConnell. Shame on you, Donald Trump. Shame on you, Mick Mulvaney. Shame on you, Lindsey Graham. Shame on every every Republican senator who seems to be sitting there saying, you don't need witnesses. (laughs) You don't need documents. My God. So the second article of impeachment, to just talk for a little bit about where we are, Donald Trump at Davos says, you know, I'm fine with this impeachment trial because we've got all the evidence and they're not going to get any of it. Basically saying, (laughs) you bet I'm obstructing Congress. Now, if norms of common behavior, and one of them is institutional patriotism is what it's called, the Senate we have to protect our own prerogatives, they would be so appalled by that that they would jump all over this, force him to give up the documents, but also say, yes, he has violated his office in doing so. Not one word, nothing. the, The norm now is whatever the cult leader tells us, cult leader being Trump or his chief lieutenant, McConnell, that's what we do. And you can't operate in a political system that way without disaster. Have a nice day. (laughs) Thanks, uh, Norm. We we actually could have gone a lot longer on Trump, I I think, but we'll have time for that again. Um, Hours. Yeah, I mean, it is sickening. And, um, you know, it's pathological and it's amazing. That we, but yes. I'm, I'm just saying what everyone says every day, so why, yeah. why, why am I bothering? Uh, the, uh, you've been uh, uh, listening to Norm Ornstein and me, and uh, thank you, Norm. Thank you, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.